It is definitely something that came up recently on campus with our students saying that, you know, given everything in the preceding couple of months before the um, lockdowns began because of COVID, uh, with things in India, with relations with Pakistan over Kashmir, with Bangladesh over the Rohingyas, a few students came up to me and said, you know, we really like to discuss this the issues that you bring up from the Shastras or, uh, you know, these really helpful principles that we hadn't thought about before. But if you asked us whether we consider ourselves Hindu, we feel ashamed to say yes. And I said to myself, you know, well, that's something wrong. I think that is something very wrong. You go over to a Catholic and ask them in my school with everything that has happened in the Catholic church, whether they're ashamed to be Catholic, they'd say, you know, we realize that we have our problems, but the truths that have undergirded the tradition is what I find strength in, is what I find healing in. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, Suhag Shukla speaks with Brahmachari Sharan. Brahmachariji is director of Hindu life and campus ministry at Georgetown the first Hindu monk to serve in this capacity at a Catholic university. They talk about the ongoing pandemic and continued Black Lives Matter protests, concerns he's seeing among Hindu students, as well as both opportunities and challenges in applying ancient Hindu spiritual teachings to contemporary social problems. Hope you enjoy it. Dr. Brahmachari Vrajvihari Sharan is a monk of the Nimbarka order and serves as the first full-time director for Hindu life and campus ministry at Georgetown University. He joined there in 2016. This makes him the first Hindu monk to serve at a Catholic institution. Brahmachari ji grew up in a quote-unquote normal Hindu family in the United Kingdom. After finishing his A-levels, he was headed towards a professional university degree but he had a little detour in store, one based on what he describes as a calling to something quite unusual in the modern age, a desire to become a Hindu priest. And so he embarked upon a journey to India for studies and memorization of sacred scripture and learning ritual theory and practice and earned the title of Yagyacharya or master in Hindu ritual. But his journey did not end there. Rather, it led him down an even lesser traveled road of monastic life becoming a monk at the young age of 24. Simultaneously, he pursued degrees at the University of Delhi, University of Oxford, and the University of Edinburgh, ultimately earning a PhD in Sanskrit, gaining expertise in Indology, Sanskrit philology, classical Indian intellectual systems, medieval Braj literature, and Vedanta. In addition to serving as a Hindu chaplain, Brahmachariji is also an adjunct professor at Georgetown's Departments of Theology and Religious Studies, Asian Studies, and Linguistics. I met Brahmachariji several years ago and have been humbled and awed by his deep grasp of our tradition and history and his knowing well the challenges and opportunities in supporting the next generation of Hindu Americans. Every time we've met, whatever time we've allotted for satsang and conversation has been too short. I imagine today will be the same. There is much to discuss, but I am hoping to center our discussion on human rights and justice, both in the context of the Hindu tradition and this current moment, and the role Hindus can and should play 
in advocacy after I have him share with you a little about his own spiritual path. Welcome, Brahmacharyji. So we've gone from lockdowns in a pandemic to protests in a pandemic, at least here in the United States. So first, how are you? How are your students? And are you still able to uh, meet their needs? Namaste, Suhagji, and thank you for that um, introduction. I don't think I'm deserving of any of it, but um, I appreciate I beg to the, disagree, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the magnanimity of your uh, introduction. Um, I think that I'm okay. I think that um, I'm very lucky to be able to socially distance and socially isolate when necessary. But obviously that gives uh, a big challenge in terms of trying to meet the needs of the students, as you, uh, as you say. So we've transitioned mostly to an online um, program. And since the lockdown started, we've had online meditations, but also most importantly, I think, is one-to-ones online. So lots of Zoom chats, uh, lots of Google Hangouts. We've had one Netflix watch party. We've had um, satsangs online. We've had bhajans online. We've had debates and discussions online. So the students are still finding ways. And I really don't know how they do it because, you know, looking at one screen for every single need, your spiritual need, plus your educational need, plus your relaxation needs, I'm sure they get a bit screen, uh, screen, what do you call it? Fatigue. Just exasperated. Yeah. Screen yeah. fatigue. Yeah. Um, and being of a generation that's a little bit before theirs, <laughs> I think I am completely fed up of the screen, but appreciate it uh, for the ability to be in contact with the students even now. Absolutely. And so, it, you know, it, this, I've talked about this with others that the pandemic has brought about, and I don't know if your students are are there yet, but, you know, there's this dark cloud, but to me, there's definitely a very thick silver lining in terms of an opportunity for us to, to kind of, in some sense, share in our suffering, uh, to reprioritize what's important. Are you finding those types of moments or expressions coming from students? Um, is that something that comes with age? I don't know. I hope it comes with uh, uh, comes as a result of any deep thinking at any point in your life. I would hope that um, I know that that uh, the tendency to deeply th- uh, ponder a subject comes a little bit with age. Um, but I've been surprised at the number of students who have been thinking deeply about not only their place in their life or their life journeys or how they relate to their families, but also in terms of, you know, giving back to the world um, that they've suddenly become so connected with after being so disconnected with it for so long. Um, I'd also say it was the comment of someone. I was, I think at the beginning of this entire process, I was very, oh, I'm, I really am angsty about having to use this uh, computer to teach and also to do all of the, the, the pastoral kind of uh, spiritual accompaniment that you do as a chaplain, teaching classes of 50 and 60 people or 40 and 50 people online through Zoom uh, without much notice. Obviously, that is a, a, a challenge for everyone and it was faced in different ways. But I think that I had gotten to a point where I'd had enough. And it was about the time that Hindus also f- started featuring amongst the numbers of uh, dead in COVID. 
Um, and as I moved on to working with families for, you know, the, the nightly satsangs and then for the funerals itself, for the shrads, um, it was very, very telling when one mother, uh, one lady who lost her husband, she said to me, you know, even though nobody from my family, my son who's stuck in a different country, he could not travel to be at his own father's funeral. Even then, I think that being able to be connected in this way, it's different. It's not the same. It does give you some kind of fulfillment. It does exact a different toll, but it, but normal uh, human accompaniment in physical proximity, that also gives a lot, but it also demands a lot. So I thought that was a very interesting way that she put it. And she said that nobody um, of the hundred or so people that were on the call for uh, the funeral service, uh, about 80 to 90 of them would not have been able to attend the funeral in any way. So there, there is definitely a silver lining. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to ask a little bit about the Nimbarka order. Um, some of our listeners may not be familiar with it, and that is the order in which you've taken vows. So can you share with us a 30,000 foot view? <laughs> and I know I'm going to be asking you to uh, summarize something that's as deep as eternity and as wide as, as that um, in, in a few minutes or less. So I apologize. But what's its history? It's philosophy and how were you exposed to the teachings? Ooh, um, that is a tough one, but I'll try my best and I'll try to keep it within those two or three minutes max. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Nimbarka Sampradai, uh, it falls within the Vaishnava tradition, Vaishnava Dharma. Uh, Vaishnava Dharma, as you know, it's its own entity and had been its own entity until the, the, uh, the realities of um, political India in 1800s and onwards. But as Vaishnava Dharma has many different sources, one of the sources that Vaishnava Dharma draws on is on Vedanta. And our order was founded by Nimbarka Bhagavan. We believe rather that he was the first earthly representative of the Nimbarka order. His guru was Narad Muni by tradition. And there, uh, Narad Muni's guru was the Sanak Sanandan Sanatan Sanat Kumar. And then their first teacher in this entire line, we always look back to uh, Hans Bhagavan. So that story in the Bhagavad where um, Hans Bhagavan comes and teaches the Sanat Kumaras about their asceticism and living a dispassionate life. Uh, that is the line to which we belong. Um, Nimbarga Bhagwan was born in Telangana. Um, so he was a normal boy, but because he had come with a very deep interest in making the peoples of India, the people of his land, connect with some of this very highfalutin, very distant, and quite honestly was barred from them, that knowledge of Vedanta, to try and connect the two dots was a difficult task. And I think that he did it well. He then moves over uh, to Braj and he makes this distinction, you know, but Brahman is a very difficult topic uh, to try and explain to people that an ultimate principle is not the same as a supreme being is a very difficult topic. And what he did say, though, was that uh, it means that um, you can think of that principle with a symbol 
that makes sense to you um, in order to make your meditations easier. And for him, he said that the, the, the notion of pure love was the symbol that we should focus on. So he's the first one to bring Radha and Krishna to the world as an equivalent for Parabrahman. So within that tradition is where I come from. I just want to mention this one thing that the reason that this tradition is not well known is because we have intentionally stayed away from politics. We've not gotten involved with kings. We've not made um, disciples out of statesmen. Our order has been in the forests, in Chopris, and they have existed as munis for the couple thousand years that we've been around. Just in terms of a time frame. And I know sometimes dating things in our tradition can get sticky, but is there, is there a historical record of, or a time frame of, of when he manifested in human form? Yeah. Um, so obviously if you were to follow the Purans, we would believe that he was born in the sixth year of Yudhishthira's reign, which would put him as, as 5,116 um, okay. uh, years ago. But if you were using the philological uh, method of Indology, you would say he was about 50 to 60 years before Shankaracharya. So okay. we've been around for about 12, 1300 years. Okay. See, I told you you're the right person because you're able to, you know, bring in all these different perspectives um, when it comes to a variety of issues. And and how were you introduced to these teachings? So I Is come it a from familial a, thing or? Yeah, I, I mean, it's not a familial thing by, by a long shot. Um, brief story is that my parents come from the West Indies. And ah. yeah. And because of that, in, in London, the dynamics are very different. We would go to mandirs that were organized and run by West Indian people. And we would never receive many Indian sadhus, um, mm -hmm. perhaps just to internal dynamics, perhaps due to external things. I'm not really interested in, in, in those dynamics yet. Um, or at least I wasn't at that age. Um, but one sadhu after, uh, with the Chinmaya mission, Swami Surupanandji came a couple of times and uh, then one Swamiji came. And it was at that sort of time I had been with the Chinmaya mission for a long time that I realized that Advaita perhaps wasn't the way that my mind was thinking about things. Um, and I was doing some research. I found out about the Nimbarka Sampradaya. I thought that they were all dead. Um, but one Swamiji came through to the mandir and he was different. There was a different air about him. You would ask him a question and there was never a right or wrong answer. It was an and 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 answer. Uh, and I thought, hmm, and followed him to India after I had done my high school. And um, I was supposed to be there just for six months. It turns out that he's from the Nimbarka Sampraday. Turns out uh, that he believes very firmly in the, uh, the notion of Bheda Bheda, which is innate unity and diversity. Um, and I thought that that was very fortuitous. So that's how I came to it. The universe has its way <laughs> or karma. Um, yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit and now um, talk about our current moment. You know, you and I have talked about what it means to engage with the world as a Hindu or from, from a place of um, Hindu teachings and experience or Hindu understanding. Um, a lived Hinduism, so to speak. So in that vein, and given 
you know, this current historic movement of a call, a collective call for racial justice in the United States. I'd like to hear from you about human and civil rights, about justice and the Hindu tradition. What does the tradition say to you on this as informed by both your scholarly study of Hindu Dharma, as well as your personal experience as a monk? That's not a small topic. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I hope that people listening to this and, and, and yourself and myself, I'll remind us all that I'm just a small monk, a small, a little person, insignificant in the entire universe, and someone who is also learning day by day. I think the only qualifier for being part of the path is that you're always willing to learn and you're wrong and accept new information. Um, with that caveat, I will also add the other caveat that I know very little when it comes to uh, current events. I know a lot about ancient events, but not so much when it comes to current events. But I'll at least spin up what my framework is for now. We have wonderful, wonderful people in our traditions. And when all of this had broken and it had become what people were seeing on their news feeds, but also on their social media feeds, I thought, yes, this is Vasudeva Kutumbakam, wonderful, let's do this. The world is one family, let's put this out there. But I realized that very quickly, it was being interpreted as an equivalence for all lives matter. Mm. And I was like, well, but, but wait a minute, that's not what I intended. That's not what I intended. So a few people on there, apart from those who were very interested in cancelling me for, uh, for um, saying something like Vasudeva Kutumbakam, a few of them engaged me on this uh, topic and I said, no, no, no. When you have a family in which everybody is treasured, if somebody has been oppressed or is made to suffer for so long, you will drop everything you have in order to help that person. So the equity that is supposed to be conveyed when we say Vasudeva Kutumbakam doesn't translate to English perfectly. Right. I mean, the whole thing, it's from Mahopanishad, everybody knows it, from um, the Ayam Nija Paroveti or Ayam Mandhur uh, uh, Paroveti, Garnana Laguchet, Sam Udara Charitaranam Tu Vasudeva Kutumbakam, thinking that this person is my people or one of us, mm -hmm. and thinking that other people, that person is from other people, that's the reckoning of people who've got very small minds. Mm. Uh, those who have more open-heartedness or those who are magnanimous know that the world is a family. It should not be boiled down to all lives matter. Mm -hmm. And the use we were using, Ishopanishad 6 is a very famous one, you know, Yastu Sarvani Bhutan Yatman Evan Upashyati, knowing that a person that realizes all beings are non-distinct from themselves and that their own self is non-distinct from those of other beings can never harbor violence or hatred or pettiness to anyone. And I would add, even in the most secret corner of their heart. So again, that was being interpreted as all lives matter. Mm. But I want to say that while we as a people we go back to these statements as a framing for our epistemological understanding of the universe and our interactions with people day to day. We do so as an inheritor of oral cultures. Oral cultures do not believe the written word. Hmm. Oral cultures engage the written word. And the way that we engage with these written words is by contextualizing them. 
we say this is what the words are, but then this is the deeper meaning. And more importantly, this is the application. The application of that is to raise up anybody who has been um, oppressed. And then we have a problem. The problem is, yes, we can do that in the United States with our non-binary kin sisters and brothers who belong to the black American community. But at that same moment, we get called hypocrites because we belong to traditions that have been used to oppress other people, our own people. And that becomes a big old hurdle for Hindus, number one, who want to remain comfortable in their Hindu identity um, and do work, meaningful work with that identity. It becomes a problem for them and it becomes a problem for wider understanding of what Hindus or who Hindus should be, are, could be, were. All of that gets very much concretized by this very weird um, binary that we're, we're forced to be inhibitor, uh, inhabitors of. And I don't think that that is helpful, either for those people who want to understand Hindus, uh, those people who want to engage with Hindus, or those people who are Hindus and have all of these questions. That kind of leads me into to my next question, and I want to explore that a little bit. You know, you have on the one hand, Hindu teachings about open-heartedness, as you said, magnanimity, oneness. Um, and then we're seeing increasingly many South Asian activists, um, you know, that are in progressive circles, many of whom who were raised in Hindu families, using the Black Lives Matter movement to highlight interreligious tensions in India, casteism in India, or anti-blackness in India. And very often it's to delegitimize Hinduism or to exclude Hindus. I recently I'm working with one of my colleagues here at HAF who you know, on some social media platform, essentially someone called for the dismantling of Hinduism as the only means of addressing social injustices uh, or as they placed it, religious injustices. So what do you say? And you're, you're in this space full time. What do you say to young Hindu Americans wanting to join that national call for racial justice or any sort of injustice but are facing this type of concerted alienation? And what if, any, what if anything can we as a community do um, to counter these kind of attempted equivalencies, very often equivalencies that aren't exactly a, a neat fit because each injustice that we might look at, whether it's historical or, um, or even current, all have different time, place, context, and histories. Mm. Yeah, that is, it is definitely something that came up recently on campus with our students saying that, you know, given everything in the preceding couple of months before the um, lockdowns began because of COVID, uh, with things in India, with relations with Pakistan over Kashmir, with Bangladesh over the Rohingyas, um, a few students came up to me and said, you know, we really like to discuss this, the issues that you bring up from the Shastras or, uh, you know, these really helpful principles that we hadn't thought about before. <clears throat> but if you asked us whether we consider ourselves Hindu, we feel ashamed to say yes. And I said to myself, you know, well, that's something wrong. I think that is something very wrong. You go over to a Catholic and ask them in my school, 
with everything that has happened in the Catholic Church, whether they're ashamed to be Catholic, they'd say, you know, we realize that we have our problems, but the truths that have undergirded the tradition is what I find strength in, is what I find healing in. So I'm not saying that any of the situations are par uh, have parity, <clears throat> but what I am saying, I hope, uh, is an echo of Adichie, you know, um, she wrote a lovely book called The Danger of a Single Story. The Danger of a Single Story would alert us to the fact that if we say that Hindus are all one type, that they have, this is how they are, this is their MO, this is how they have been, this is what they've done. In making that into one single story, that this is the only thing that Hindus have been uh, there for and are about since in times immemorial, then I think we're in very big danger of peddling a lie. Mm -hmm. I think that lie is an insidious one because it's used and manipulated by people who have very little time for understanding diversity. Diversity of voices, diversity of testimony. The way that I was a Hindu is not the way that you're a Hindu. The way that you're a Hindu means that you're going to think differently than I think. We are a collective of peoples. And that's what I really appreciate about having been, uh, you know, a part of Dharma for so long. It took me a while to realize because we were educated in the West that we're not about what's right and what's wrong more importantly, who's right and who's wrong. But we are interested in hearing from all of those people that are affected. The whole idea of Parishadas, uh, which we're talking from the Taittiriya Upanishad, not from anywhere else. The whole idea of Parishada means that you have people who are knowledgeable about and represent, sorry, different ways of thinking about the topic. You would have the testimony of those people. You would listen to them and judge them on the merits of their argumentation, not on the, on the emotional glasses that we have on that blind us to every other experience that exists in the world. So I would say that that's a problem, but I would say that we cannot rest as Hindus uh, in our lofty morals anymore. You know, Vasudeva Kutumbagam is well and good, but as I've explained, it needs contextualization. Why does it need contextualization? Because people don't understand it the way we do. If people don't understand it the way we do, it means our voice is not clear enough. We do need to clarify our voice and we need to clarify our voice by making sure we remember that we're clarifying our voices because mm. Hindus are not one thing. Hindus are many things. Right. Yeah. That's a lot to lot to chew on. Mm. You know, oftentimes what we have found in, in the community is, is this disconnect, you know, we, we will very like it, it flows that we're one, we're all embodied Atma or, or, you know, spirit consciousness at the absolute, whatever you want to, you know, put on that in terms of a label. Uh, but then the actions that we might take whether it's they're mired in national politics or even personal politics, like at, at a temple or something, um, there is there is a disconnect, obviously, between um, theory and praxis, and it's nothing unique to Hindus. 
how do we bring about more awareness of that? Because I, I, I very often, you know, I, I'll take it back to, you know, when my kids were young, very often Asim and I might be talking about something and we don't realize the kids are listening, but they are the entire time. So, you know, if, if there were like one or two practical exercises or piece of advice that you would give to, to any Hindu to bridge that divide, um, what would it take to do that? Ooh, one or two. It's a challenge. That well, is you a- can give me more. <laughs> <laughs> Let me give you my personal experience with this. Very yes. briefly. And then, and then the one or two. The personal experience goes as such. I hated going to Mandars to listen to Kathas. Because to me, um, I could watch the Ramayana on the TV and get the gist right there. Um, and this I'm talking about when I was eight. And I could also go to the Mahabharata, uh, watch the Mahabharata series and get the entire gist. Why would I have to listen to anything about, you know, from the Bhagavata or something like that at the temple? <laughs> I wanted to go to the temple to learn how to live. But obviously at that age, you're not going to um, be too interested in anything at all other than, you know, the, the Arti, because that meant that within five minutes, you'll be able to get hold of the lovely, lovely Prashad. Right. <laughs> so... so Coming through that, when I was younger, what made me question things was when I would ask parents or elders and they would say, you know, you don't ask about these things. And then there was an incident that I keep reciting to my students. I used to love chocolate. If you could see me now, you would see, you would still see that I love chocolate. Um, And when I was younger, I had, somebody had given me some very, very nice chocolate, the Ritter chocolate that you get from Germany. And they had just been there, brought some back for me. And I went up climbing up the cupboards in the kitchen to put it at the top shelf to hide it away from my sister so that she couldn't get it. And a couple of days later, after playing in the garden, I came back in and I was like, yes, time for chocolate. Was going to the kitchen and my auntie yelled, the world was going to end. That's how she was yelling. I was like, what what happened? And she goes, "Um, you're so horrible and dirty. You don't come here. Go, 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 go far. Go, go away. I was like, what? I just want the chocolates up there. She said, I'm busy. I'm busy. It's puja today. Don't you know this? Stay away. Go Go and bathe. Go and bathe. Now, obviously, that is a very silly incident. It doesn't mean anything to anybody, but to an eight-year-old who wanted their chocolate, it means that, number one, auntie's evil. Mm-hmm. Number two, why is auntie being evil? Well, because it's puja. Ah. Pujas are evil. Three, why is puja happening? Because we're supposed to show our thanks to God. God is evil. Right. Right? And number four, well, God is worshipped in different ways by different people. Well, then Hindus are evil. If Mm. this is what they do, right? Right. That's an Mm eight-year-old. That's an eight-year-old. The problem is, as you grow up and psychologists will tell you, child development psychologists, everything, it's like the death by a thousand cuts. It's it's small experiences over a lifetime that constructs the narrative that leads to our worldview. So you go and ask mom and dad, why, say now when you're 16 and you've gone through your religious studies classes at, at school, why do we celebrate Diwali if all that happened was Sita went missing and Ram brought her back? Why do we celebrate it? What, <laughs> is there anything deeper in that? Um, and mom and dad will be like, yeah, it's about light over dark. And suddenly we sound like we're Christian. Um, light over dark. Uh, isn't there anything deeper than that, mom and dad? I don't know. Go and ask Pandiji. You've gone over to Panditji. 
Pandit ji knows Vedas. Pandit ji knows uh, Karmakand. Pandit ji knows Jyotish. But Pandit ji doesn't know how to explain anything else than what everybody else knows. The question I asked was, why is that the case? Mm-hmm. It is because of cumulative six to eight hundred years worth of colonization, which mm-hmm. worked specifically to remove the systems of education that we had. Right. We lost the in, the ability to do what I was talking about at the beginning. We need to read, but we can't do that unguided because what is available in English is the product of the English language's history in South Asia. So, if you want to read, you need to approach people who know a little bit about what colonial scholarship looks like, what decolonization of scholarship looks like, so that it is not you know some fabrication because oh Hindus have been here since the beginning of time and we're so great and we could fly in airplanes and created nuclear weapons and that's all well and good for a specific kind of discussion but when you're talking about real life life mm-hmm. in the 21st century those things i'm sorry to say don't matter what does matter is, are those things that are tangible that have current meaning and that are at the end of the day there in the scriptures but just needs the process of that interlocutor that interpreter the person who knows whether she's a brahmavadini whether he's a brahmagnani whatever you want to call it there is the tatwa is there and there is not and this is not a fabrication there is documented evidence of how the teachings of the shastras were so specifically time place and circumstance sensitive so that you could have on the one hand ramanuja saying in his uh, brahma sutra bhashyas that yes shudra should not be taught the vedas and on the other hand he can go and take diksha make a guru of kanchipurna who is more than a shudra where does that where does that stand you know Where mm-hmm. does that stand if we are supposed to be book literal people we're not we are dynamic hopefully uh, available uh, able to understand diversity hopefully because we are oral so we are an oral tradition because we're supposed to listen that's what we're supposed to do right we were talking earlier about some of these ways of uh trying to alienate hindu americans in these larger conversations mm-hmm. so another thing that has come up is conversation revolving around the immigration act of 1965 here in the united states um which kind of opened up uh the the country uh for skilled labor coming in from india um largely as graduate students and then you know setting roots to what we know today as the larger indian american and and largely hindu american community it, it it's a subset right you have people who are coming to pursue graduate studies so you've already uh kind of have a selection bias there and it's resulted in what people oftentimes refer to as the model minority so how can we ensure that students today hindu americans and we know that not all hindu americans are of indian descent but for those who are that how do we ensure that they can remain allies in the black lives uh, matter movement without feeling quote unquote brown guilt for the opportunities that they've benefited from that one is very tough and i i'm i'm going to just saying that this is my opinion Mm-hmm. um the united kingdom has a very similar points based entry system 
for mm-hmm. those who are coming to immigrate from other places in the world. And when you look at it and look at the documentation, you have to show that you're going to be a benefit to the people that are, uh, to the people that you're going to be working for and that you're not going to be displacing another member of that country as you come in, um, from that job. When you set the ground and people, people don't really think too much about the, the realities of such a thing. It means that you're only going to get those who have been highly educated to come from India. If we're taking India in specific, uh, as a specific focus for now, who were highly educated in India, people who had access to education, those people who had access to education were nine times out of 10, not from the broader Indian population. Right. That has changed. That has changed to a great extent these days, it is by no way or means completely perfect. It is not even perfect. It's not even good, but it's a a bit better than when it was when people first started to come to the United, uh, United States. As children of people who have come to the country, and I can tell this from my own personal um, experience. When my father came to this country, he was escaping a political situation. Hmm. When he came to this country, he worked three jobs and would sleep for four hours and would work those three jobs for seven days of the week. Um, And um, when one of those jobs would calm down, he would use that time to study. And that's how he got through law school. Mm. Right. He didn't come with any privilege. He didn't come with any privilege. He worked hard for what he got. And when in the 1980s, um, institutionalized racism in the Crown Prosecution Service of the United Kingdom became a problem, uh, black minority people were being uh, sidestepped whenever and promotion would come up or issues would come up within the organization. And as this was a public body, the Crown Prosecution Service over here uh, is the body that tries people for crimes. Him, his Muslim friend, um, Mr. Razak, and uh, a black Caribbean friend of his, the three of them worked together uh, to put together a case that ultimately um, the black uh, Caribbean friend of theirs took to court and she won that tribunal and institutionalized racism became a thing that the Crown Prosecution Service recognized and began to reform. Mm, Wow. So, yes, I would have to say that socioeconomic privilege is a real thing. Mm -hmm. We should be able to hand on heart, acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. I do acknowledge that through the hard work of my parents, I have been able to go to university. I have been able to take out student loans, work myself and pay myself through university. There are people who don't, who don't even have to do that. Their parents have taken care of everything for them. Right. The ability to look back at oneself, contextualize the journey of their parents to the journey of people who are there in the States who have been there for 400 years and have been subject to some of the most brutal practices that humans could ever afflict on each other. I think that once you've really taken a a hard look at yourself and your family, you will have a very strong place from which to accompany your fellow non-binary 
sisters and brothers of the black, uh, black American community. If, however, you do not examine yourself, but just by the hype that other people are putting in front of you, I think that would be a very disingenuous way of accompanying them because at the end of the day, it has no foundation. I mean, it kind of touches upon what you said earlier in that there is no one story, right? For, so whether it's coming from, uh, you know, our religious experience or our social experience, uh, you know, where did our parents come from? Uh, you know, my father was similarly, I mean, he was escaping dire poverty in India and happened to, you know, show some educational aptitude and, and, a, and a wealthy, uh, a wealthy woman in Mumbai sponsored his education. And that was really his only way out. Uh, so there are so many of these stories. And I know that many of his classmates didn't have that necessarily. It was just an expectation. Well, we're part of this socioeconomic class. And of course, you're going to go to the United States to pursue your education. So I think that that's a really um, important point that you highlight. And in that, I suppose one last question I'll ask is that how do we ensure that uh, Hindu American students of, of South Asian descent don't equate or conflate brown privilege with white privilege, uh, because our families have had their own struggles and experiences in acclimating to the United States. We do have our own history of, of being from a culture that was colonized for well over, you know, six to 800 years. Aren't those experiences also important and valuable to understanding the immigrant experience? But how do you do that knowing that there's a uniqueness to the African-American experience here? It is a multi-layered, multi-textured um, issue. And I would say that people who want to equate brown privilege with white privilege need to do some reading um, because as far as history goes, none of that is um, verifiable. Um, people like to point out to things that have come up recently. They've read in 21st century um, issues into texts that don't belong anywhere near these kinds of subjects. And I read something ludicrous that, you know, oh, in, uh, Aryan people and Indo-Aryans are all white supremacists. Yes. So I, are Hindus, apparently. And because <laughs> all Hindus are Aryans, they're all white supremacists. I was like, hey, Bhagwan. <laughs> Aryas, not only, I mean, the strongest Aryas at the moment the people who preserve Arya culture to the best are the Nambudiris. Where are they from? Kerala. What do they look like? They do not look like Punjabis or they do not right. look like people from Northwestern, um, uh, of, uh, the Northwestern region of South Asia. They look like exactly their African ancestors. Mm -hmm. I mean, people who know anything about paleogenetics or uh, archaeogenetics, they know the haplogroup, they know the L3 haplogroup is the source code of how our DNA is made. And that is older. It is closer to Africa. And the fact that Arya people made those people part of their culture so much so that those people, those, uh, those people who have the L L3 uh, haplogroup, those people are the ones that are now quote unquote protecting or preserving Arya culture. Mm -hmm. I think that should be a, uh, that should be a discrepancy that would blow any of those kinds of things out of the water. So 
I don't know why I got so emotional about that, but I saw it and it just made absolutely no sense. Anybody who could pick up a book and read a little bit would find out that those are either 21st, uh, sorry, 20th century lies that were cooked up by the Germans or by, um, how do you say this without being uncharitable, um, by Protestant British scholars and their, um, and their students, right. whether they're aware of the bias of their, uh, their teacher or not. So when you're talking about the brown guilt um, being equated with brown privilege, I think that's a different story. Yes, yes, we have issues of colorism. We have issues of casteism. But was that the only story in India? Or were there people who problematized all of that? We had an indigenous way of refuting caste discri uh, discrimination. But because people remove those indigenous uh, voices away from the mix and say, oh, no, it was the saviors who came in and converted everybody out of Hindu tradition that was oppressing everybody. That is a heap of nonsense. You do, dis you do a, a disservice to people like Basavanna, who said that ladies, uh, Basavanna, who said that ladies who are menstruating should be able to not only do pujas, but lead pujas. Not only Ramanuja, who, let, who led the charge to let every section of society be uh, able to enter temples. All of these things get wiped under the carpet and you get this false history that is created. Our people don't do any better. Our well, so we have some well-meaning people who, again, are reaching back to airplanes and uh, nuclear weapons. <laughs> <laughs> who come up with similar kind of grandiose um, Vasudeva Kutumbak-esque um, explanations. When you are trying to accompany our, uh, our Black American sisters, brothers, and non-binary siblings, we realize that our understanding of racism is different. Racism, as we have faced, has been a, a a tool employed by the colonial masters to rule us effectively, which means that if we wanted to be able to survive in Indian society, our ancestors would have had to educate themselves or would have had to subjugate themselves to the masters every whim. In doing so, you, you raised yourself in the society. Were you raising yourself in the caste system? Absolutely not. But you were raising yourself in the eyes of the white man. That racism is a different racism to being throttled by the white man in the way that our, uh, our, our black American siblings have been. Yes, Winston Churchill is responsible for the deaths of 4 million people during the Bengal famine and numerous people over, over time in India. But our people have not yet come to an understanding that they need justice for this. And if they have, they're going about it in ways that make very little sense. I, I oftentimes... What I'm observing is that there is activism or, or outcry from the basis of identity, but it's oftentimes not rooted in the ethics mm. of, of the tradition. Um, and, you know, I, I think our challenges are many, uh, you know, in terms of having, having those guides, having those gurus that can connect those dots for us. Yeah, I would just say that if we wanted to solve or at least put one foot better forward in any of these discussions, Hindus really need to consider, number one, whether they can successfully be honest with themselves 
about their journeys and their histories, um, and also be open with the findings that they might have from there that are useful for the dialogue. That would be number one. But number two is to help people understand the tradition, the texts, the history, the archaeology, our essence by reading it themselves, by being guided through studying those things themselves on the basis of understanding that Dharmic people had, not on the basis of understanding that others had of us. If we could focus on those two areas, I think Hindus would be much better suited to accompany anybody that was oppressed. I would hope that Hindus could lend their voices to um, the struggles of Native Americans. I would hope that Hindus could lend their voices to the struggles of our um, African sisters and brothers and non-binary kin. I would hope that Hindus could also lend their voices to anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, uh, you know, anti-Sikhs, anti-Hindus, anti-everything. If there is oppression, it should be countered. But we cannot do it by saying that we suffered in the same way. We suffered. We suffered badly. We suffered as bad um, as any other type of humans have been forced to suffer on this planet by those who have power. But when it comes to the modern day reality of 21st century United States of America, the people that are still being trampled upon are our black uh, non-binary kin sisters and brothers. So that's where we need to focus, but we can't do, we should not do any more of this. Oh, those people are telling us this is how we should behave. We need to stop that. We need to focus on how to really understand our part in the world's history and how to become a part of the world's present. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help this show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate.